Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program of Foundations in Faith. Today, we're, we're going to continue with the Gospel according to St. Matthew, and we're going to look at again at the 22nd chapter, but this time verses 34 to 40. What has led up to this particular passage in, in Matthew's Gospel, we have already seen the confrontation between Jesus and the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees and the Herodians and so forth, and how they try to trap him in an argument and they are unsuccessful. And then he tells a series of parables in which they are forced to make a choice and because of the crowd, they're really kind of forced to choose that which really is self-condemnatory for them. And they're tired of losing. The gospel that we have today is the end of this series of uh, the confrontations. And so then the gospel, uh, according to St. Matthew, then it begins to turn more and more toward the passion and, and toward the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord. The distance between himself and the Pharisees is continually growing in these confrontations. And then this gospel comes upon us. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they got together and tried to disconcert him. And one of them put this question to him, Master, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Now here, we have to stop and we have to ask, what is the law that they're talking about? We're used to thinking of the law in terms of the Torah, in terms of the law of Moses, in terms of the first five books of the Bible. But that's not what they're talking about. Because as rabbinic Judaism developed, and it didn't develop really fully until actually after, after Jesus, it was active and among the Hebrews, and, and certainly by the first century. And what they had done as masters of the law is they had developed distinct commandments, uh, 613 distinct commandments. 248 of them were positive, these are the things you must do, and 365 were negative, these are the things you cannot do. Then what they used to do is they used to debate the law, and they would say, of these 613 commandments, which is the greatest, which is lesser, which is great but not greatest, which is small but not smallest, and so forth. And they would endlessly, endlessly debate the law, so that when they want to uh, disconcert Jesus, when they want to trip Jesus up, then they're going to involve him in this, in this endless cycle of argumentation over the interpretation of the 613 commandments, which they are now calling the law. So what happens is, is that Jesus, of course, ignores that. This is an important, a very important thing for us because when we get into the letters of St. Paul and St. Paul is condemning the law, you cannot be saved by the law and so on and so forth. And if you do think you can be saved by the law, then you'd better obey every single. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about the 613 distinct commandments. He's not talking about the Torah. He's not talking about the law of Moses. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the rabbinical law. And so that's exactly what Jesus is going to face. He's going to face the rabbinical law. And he understands the uselessness of that law, and he understands the foolishness and the waste of time and the endless debates. And so he responds. 
You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And the second resembles it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that what Jesus does then, he goes back to the Torah. He goes back before all of these rabbinic manipulations. And he goes back to what is called the Shema Israel, and uh, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following. And then he adds to that, and this is a historical debate, was the love of neighbor part of the great commandment? in the first century because it doesn't come from Deuteronomy, it comes from Leviticus 19.18. Nevertheless, whether it was customary that this happened or not, Jesus includes the two into kind of a singular commandment with two parts to it. And so what he really does is he cuts through the rabbinical uh, squabbling and he goes back to the heart and the essence of the covenant. And uh, which is the fundamental relationship of God to Israel and the beginnings of the understanding of God, his relationship to his people. Once the Torah comes to an end in the scriptures, the prophecies begin. And the prophecies, therefore, are looking forward in hope to the fulfillment of the Torah to the fulfillment of the great commandment, not to the fulfillment of the 613 commandments of the rabbis, but to the great commandment of the Lord. You know, that if we, if we look back and we go through carefully the Ten Commandments, certainly any orderly society has to abide by the Ten Commandments, not because that's the law, but because that's survival for a human society. Go through each one and see if there were not prohibitions in that, if there were not positive elements in that, what society would look like. And then I suppose, unfortunately, we could look out the window and see. This is the dynamic that's going on here, the dynamic of Jesus. Then setting straight the squabbling of the rabbis, returning the focus of the divine message, divine revelation, returning the focus of that back on the Torah, back on revelation itself, the revelation that comes from the Lord through the great prophets, through the patriarchs, and not through the squabbling of the, of the casuistic rabbis. And so then he goes on, once he has articulated this, and he said, on these two commandments hang the whole law, and the prophets as well. And so he himself is saying, this is summing up the law and the prophets. This is the summation of the whole old covenant. That's what Jesus is saying. And so then it comes down to us. The reaction, of course, of the, of the, of the rabbis to this, they can end once again. They know they can only acquiesce to this. And so the confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees come to an end. And uh, in coming to an end, then the consequences of confrontations begins to unfold in the life of the Lord and in the story of the gospel. So we have this now before us. And so what is it that we are to do with this? You know, this idea of rejection of the law, which comes from St. Paul, 
has created a great deal of mischief through the centuries. And perhaps one of the worst manifestations of it was uh, during the Reformation when Luther, not understanding the difference between the law and the prophets, the Torah and the commandments of the rabbis, proclaimed to everyone that we were free from the law. And he did this to mean also the law of the church. What happened, the poor consequences of that, were that the peasants who did not understand the subtleties of Scripture and to whom it was not explained rose up in revolution, ending in the death of over 100,000 of them, all over the issue of the relationship of the believer, of the Christian, to the law. And through the misunderstanding that comes through a rejection of all law because of what St. Paul says, is tragic, and it's all the more important and all the more serious for us than to look at this, because we certainly have people today who are doing exactly the same thing, that saying that, you know, God is just love and we can do as we want, you know, the law is obsolete, the rules are obsolete, they don't understand me, they don't understand my situation, um, I'm going to do as I please, and so forth. So there are not the consequences there were for the German peasants in the 16th century, but there are consequences to the human spirit and to the human soul and this kind of internal spiritual anarchy that is part of any misunderstanding of the passages of St. Paul concerning the law in the New Testament. On the other hand, we run the risk, we run the real risk of doing the same thing all over again that the rabbis did. When we take our moral principles and we take our moral theology and we reduce it to the 613 commandments that are supposed to guide our everyday lives, we also distort what the whole moral law is all about because the whole moral law must rest on the foundation of the law and the prophets. The whole moral law must rest on the foundation of the great commandment and that which is second to it, the love of neighbor. That is interpreted for us in many ways, interpreted for us and guided, we're guided in that by the experience of the church, what we call the tradition of the church. There's great tragedy going on in the church today. In fact, as the Bishop of Essen in Germany has now said, we have to get rid of all of our tradition, um, move beyond the New Testament and, you know, kind of create the new church. Well, no. I mean, that isn't even what Jesus did. He preserved the law and the prophets. He just got rid of the rabbinical trivia. And when we move forward in a more liberated state, perhaps, when we move forward in a deeper dwelling and delving into the mysteries of Revelation, into the mysteries of Scripture, we have a right to reinterpret our rules and our laws, but we do not have a right to create them ex nihilo. We don't have a right to take, create them out of nothing, out of the nothingness of my own consciousness and my own desire and my own will. Um, the Bishop of Essen says, you know, well, more and more people are leaving the church. Well, he ought to look in the mirror to see why. Because if it has no foundation, why would anyone belong to it? If it isn't rooted in the revelation of God to his people, if it isn't rooted in God accompanying his people through the ages, through the old covenant, into the new covenant, through the sacraments, into the modern world, then why? Then why would we join something 
that was so fluid and so ephemeral and basically had no roots in anything but the geist of the spirit of the age. It's kind of, of fascinating. When, whenever we have gotten historically into these situations where we were able to let loose of everything and the human spirit itself directed the future of religion, um, we can go back to the 16th century again and can find there the experiment in the German city of Münster when the evangelical preachers from Holland came in and eventually they jettisoned the whole tradition, all of the laws. They declared polygamy. They declared you know, themselves to be gods. It ended up in a brutal massacre. There is no good end to saying that we are not accountable to the Creator. There is no good end in saying we have to move beyond Jesus Christ, who is the focus, who is, in fact, himself revelation. He is the word. He is the logos. He is God's expression to us of who he is and the truth of revelation itself. And so this leads us then into many modern problems. I think we have said so many times that the Gospels are not locked forever into the first century. The Gospels are always relevant, and they always include the contemporary situation. This is why they're so powerful. They are not locked in time. They're not just historical documents. They're a commentary on the relationship between God and humanity, a commentary on human nature, and a commentary on the divine benevolence and the divine truth. And so we have to take them, and someone might say, you know, well, you have no right to interpret a first century text in terms of the experience of today. And the answer to that is, yes, we do. Not only do we have a right to do that, we must do that. That does not mean changing the essence. That does not mean going back and saying, well, the law and the prophets are irrelevant. It doesn't mean that, because the law and the prophets are the foundation of the covenantal relationship of God to humanity. And they endure and they are incorporated. How many times do we see in the gospel Jesus himself going back and using the Old Testament in order to teach what he has come to teach, the case in point being this gospel today? Where does he go to answer the rabbis? He goes back to the Torah. He goes back to the prophets. And he says, this is the distillation of revelation. This is the distillation of the whole thing. And so then we have to come forward in our day, in our age, and say, all right, we must now apply the great commandments. We must apply them to the modern world and to the modern church. And in so doing, we are constantly in a situation of reflection and reform. We are constantly in the reflection of seeking out and trying to find in the modern world a faithful pathway into the ways of the Lord, a faithful pathway into the eternal kingdom. That's what we're challenged to do by this gospel. It's not to say, well, you know, okay, I love God and, and love all my neighbors except the ones I don't love, and so I'm saved. Can't do that because the principle of the great commandment must be articulated in its particular form in every time and every place and in every way. And that means, how do we love God? St. John tells us, you cannot say you love God if you do not obey his commandments. And so we must obey the commandments of the Lord.
And we go through the gospel and we find over and over again the commandments that Jesus has spoken. You do this, you do this. Once again, people go back and say, the Lord has said this, but it's too harsh for us, so we have to make up something new so that we don't offend one another. No. If Jesus said it, then we have to incorporate that into our modern way of life. That doesn't mean we just jerk it out of the scriptures. It has a context, and the main context is the great commandment. How does this relate to the great commandment? Jesus doesn't tell us anything that we must do which is not good for us. This idea that he's restricting us. No, he's not. He's liberating us. He's giving us the freedom to live a life of authenticity, a life that expands within ourselves our own humanity. I find it amazing that the moral principles of Catholicism are seen as oppressive. They're not oppressive at all. They're liberating. They keep us from sinking ourselves into the quagmire of modernity. They liberate us from our own weaknesses and our own faults. They guide us and direct us toward the destiny in life we are created for. It's like the, the teaching of the church, the magisterium of the church, intellectually even. People say, well, you know, again, and this is the, you know, the poor bishop of Essen, you know, we get, we'll get rid of that. We'll get rid of all that. Nonsense. Because what it tells us is the, what the magisterium, what the tradition of the church is, is the experience of the people of God traveling with their God throughout the centuries and sharing with us their experience and their lessons learned. There is no intellectual order freer than that which exists in the Roman Catholic Church. What the teachings and the doctrines do is tell us fruitful directions to go in and to tell us useless directions to waste our time on. Don't go there. It doesn't lead anywhere. We've been there before, and it's a dead end. Go in this direction, because that opens the whole horizon of being to us. We have fallen victim to the Protestant interpretation of Catholicism without understanding that the whole purpose of Catholicism is the liberation of the human mind and the heart from the entanglements and from the deceptions of every age, of every time, of every place. It turns us away from the voice of the serpent in the garden and toward the grandeur and the wonder of what has been given to us. And when we choose to take that and trivialize it like the rabbis did the law and the prophets, then we do a disservice to the church and a disservice to the Lord and a disservice to people who are authentically and honestly striving and struggling to find their way into the fulfillment of their own humanity, which is realized only in the final entrance into the kingdom of God. We, this overarching vision of the relationship between God and ourselves is really clearly and interestingly articulated in this simple short gospel that we have today. Don't bury yourselves in the trivia, but learn to live within the law and the spirit of the prophets, and you will find peace and you will find the living God 
and you will find salvation. St. Francis of Assisi tells us that, you know, the Lord came and he died for us that all humanity might be redeemed, but that salvation is a personal response to that redemptive grace. There is not universal salvation because of the life of the Lord. This is certainly also a misunderstanding of the scriptures. And Francis sees it very, very clearly that the Lord has, you know, we have, we have wandered away from the purity of creation. We have wandered away from primordial goodness. We have entered into the quagmire of sin and darkness. And at a point in time in history, the Lord has come and said, now it's time for you to turn back, to turn home. It's time for the journey to begin back to the source, back to the creator himself. And I will give you the means to do that, but you must receive them and accept them. In other words, I give you the means of salvation, but you must participate in the grace. You must accept that and take those steps on the journey, the pathway home. This kind of is the whole vision of the church. It explains its job is to teach the scriptures to us. Its job is to teach the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ to us in order that sifting through the human experience of millennia, they are able to share with us the wisdom of the ages. They are able, it is able to share with us the false moves and the false starts and enable to show us then the great openings into the vastness of the transcendent realities of the cosmos and of God himself. Jesus himself has said, no one goes to the Father except through the Son. And therefore it is only through Jesus Christ that we can reach any truth, that we can reach truths about something, but we cannot reach its ultimate truth unless we go through the revelation of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. The medievals understood that. They understood that all authentic knowledge eventually and ultimately lead us to the presence of being itself. And the only way to get there is through what being itself tells us about himself. And what he tells us is the word, the logos. And the Word was in the beginning with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things came to be, and without him nothing came to be, nothing is. And so Jesus becomes then the passageway to truth, to knowledge, to wisdom, to salvation. We risk the whole destiny of humanity by turning away from him. Who would choose to follow a German bishop rather than Jesus Christ? Who would think that was a good idea? Who would think that somehow or other that ensures us a fullness of meaning of our life? What it does ensure us of is giving up the definition of humanity that the Creator has established and replacing it for our own definition of humanity, fraught as it is with the myopia of any time and place, with the burdens of human sinfulness and limitations. The only way we don't get beyond those limitations of our human person by simply wallowing in ourselves. 
we do so by stepping outside of ourselves. And we can see this in any relationship that is worthwhile, any relationship that is founded on love. We see that. We have to go out of ourselves to encounter the other. We do not simply consume the other and then process them in our own consciousness. To do so is to destroy the relationship. To do that with Jesus Christ is to destroy the relationship. To do that with the living God is to annihilate the relationship. We step beyond ourselves. We do not draw reality into ourselves, process it, and define it ourselves. We encounter it. And that's what the Catholic Church is all about, is stepping beyond ourselves into the mystery of the truth of the revelation of Jesus Christ and using to get there the instruments that he has given to us, which are the sacraments and the wisdom of the church. And if we refuse to do that, we wallow in the ignorance of an age and we become very similar to the poor peasants of 1525 who rose up because they didn't understand the issue and they were deceived and lied to, and it cost them a 100,000 of them their lives. It will cause more than a 100,000 of us our eternal life if we are not more responsive to the Word of God, more insightful into His presence in our lives, and more desirous of stepping beyond ourselves into the mystery of reality itself, into the mystery of being itself, into the mystery of the living God. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.